on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the dairy industry happy with the breakdown in talks over the EU trade deal. Yeah, I mean, market access is another one. We've always been saying we want like for like. As we've said multiple times, you know, 70,000 tonnes of EU products coming in here already. Uh, we sent them 400 last year. Uh, and they still wanted to cry poverty over that one So and, and not allow us better access into the EU. And the head of global retail for Nutrien visits the country. But if I look around agriculture today, it's, it's a very competitive market. It's about efficiency. You gather that efficiency by being open to innovation and technology. That's going to be that's going to be a real key going forward in the future. Yeah, one of the heads of the big agribusiness Nutrien on the country out today, and reaction from the dairy industry over the breakdown in talks on the trade deal with the European Union. That story coming up as well. Good day, Tony Briscoe, with you on this Tuesday. Hope all is going well in your part of the world. Also coming up today, we'll take you inside one of the biggest glass houses in the state where medicinal cannabis is being grown. In just a moment, the latest on the Varroa mite outbreak after the decision to manage the pest and not continue the eradication effort. And the fight against the fungus which attacks the trunk of grapevines. Plus, we check the latest on the weather and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 936. That number, 0438 922 936. It's now been more than a month since the Varroa mite eradication strategy was abandoned as authorities agreed to move to a management phase. So how is it working and what does it mean for beekeepers and those industries that rely on bees for pollination? Angus Verley spoke with Peter MacDonald, president of the Victorian Farmers Federation's beekeeping branch. Where we are right at the moment, so there's no official um, transition to management plan came out, so, so no program has yet been put out um, for everyone to, to approve. And so the process is is going through that there's a lot of people that have been involved um, and, and industry groups, um, all, all the people that depend, all the groups and industries that depend on bees for pollination and the honeybees and the state and federal governments have all been involved in the, this response from day one. Um, so they've got to sit down and agree to a plan. This is how we're going to transition the, the honeybee and, and the um, pollination-reliant industries um, to living with life with Varroa. Uh, so they've got to come up with a plan, then they've all got to agree to that plan, and, they, and then that can be rolled out. Um, so we're, we're still waiting on that to happen. Um, the process that is, is that the New South Wales DPI, as the lead agency, will be um, developing a plan up, put it to all the other parties, and then they'll they'll negotiate through, um, go through an official process to actually negotiate that plan and then agree to it. And then, of course, everyone will put in money. So all the industry groups involved and all the all the governments will will share in in funding this program, which will, should go for a for a two or three year period. While that official process is still happening um, at the moment, beekeepers um, and and other people within the industry, our, our supplier groups and whatnot, are all getting ready. Um, there's there's chemicals that have come online that have been approved through um, the 
uh, APVMA. Um, governments have actually sourced a whole um, heap of approved chemicals now and, uh, and they're helping to make sure that the beekeepers have good access to it and it's not a restricted supply. So beekeepers can actually access their chemicals free. Um, all they need to do is test that their hives um, show that they've actually got varroa mite to a level that they need to treat and then they'll be able to get the chemicals um, for free from the New South Wales DPI. Um, and of course, Varroa has only been found in New South Wales at this point in time. So so at this stage, it hasn't spread any further than New South Wales, and we'll see how that pans out over the next period. Okay, Peter, a few questions there. Those chemicals, those miticides, how how effective are they? They're quite effective. Um, they're, they're chemicals that are they're widely used across the world and very effective. And and so they're you know they're they're up to the eighty to ninety five percent efficacy um, in terms of killing the mite uh, and not killing the bees. So so they're very very effective. What's the situation with the borders at the moment? Because obviously this is what concerns those industries that rely on on uh, bees for pollination, almonds particularly, that that relies on that movement of bees across borders. What's the situation with both the New South Wales and South Australian borders? Uh, For us here in Victoria, they're the the main two borders that that, um, um, occur, mind you. The the Queensland border, so transshipment of of bees or or shipment of bees, especially queen bees from Queensland, which is one of the major um, Queensland and New South Wales and the major states that supply queens around Australia or especially on the eastern seaboard. So, so for Victoria, we can we can get bees in from New South Wales to Victoria. Um, we can take bees into South Australia and return. Um, there is restrictions, though. It's not a, just a free travel. So there is permits that you do have to apply for before you move bees, and you do have to be approved uh, before you can travel. Within Australia, we've got beekeeping everywhere, um, and, and beekeeping is truly a, a national industry within Australia. Um, and bees, um, especially the professional beekeeping, we do need to move our bees to in order to keep them alive because there's not enough flowers to, to stay in the one place. And just finally, Peter, weighing up everything we've just talked about, how do you feel about what, what the future holds for the industry? Future is is um, going to be very exciting for the beekeeping industry, Angus. Um, and for some people, it's, it's going to be a... Uh, We've all got to decide as beekeepers as to whether we're prepared for this game. Um, we're the last country in the world without Baroa. Uh, we've got it now. No other um, country has been able to keep it out or stop it from moving across the country once it got in. So that so we've all got to just realise that um, we will get Baroa. Um, it's just a matter of time, and uh, and so we've got to be prepared for that. And that's the key thing that I think for every beekeeper and and every every industry and business out there that supports beekeeping um, is is we've got to be prepared. Don't be scared about it. It's coming. Just be prepared for it. So as long as we're prepared, we'll be, we'll be fine. Um, it will require extra work and, and extra effort and extra costs on beekeepers to actually maintain the health of the hive as we would now, um, sort of pre-Varroa. So it will be harder to do, but we can still do it, and, and as every other country in the world has shown us that there is life after Varroa, uh, we've just got to change the way we do it. So we've got to be flexible, nimble, and be prepared, and um, and, and we can still do this and, and have a highly effective and efficient honeybee industry within Australia. Beekeeper Peter McDonald speaking there with Angus Verley about the latest on the Varroa mite. Some ominous words there about it's coming. Just a, a matter of time, it'll come to all states.
Well, the dairy industry has thrown its support behind the federal government walking away from the free trade negotiations with the European Union. Trade Minister Don Farrell has told the EU, the EU negotiators at least, the talks scheduled for this morning in Osaka, Japan, will not go ahead because the deal has not progressed. Australian Dairy Farmers President Rick Gladigo says fair trade has to come ahead of free trade. It's actually been a good result for dairy at this stage, but we're certainly aware that uh, the negotiations will, will continue. They're not going to throw the whole lot away. Just that this could take a few years before we maybe ever get to uh, another position on it or, or what happens. So, But from the dairy industry, look, it's a, it's a good result for us. We can still keep using all those names. As you know, there was over 50, 50 names that were, were under fire. So um, as well as... Um, yeah, I mean, we, the market access was also another issue, but... Yeah, uh, can you go further you know, into that? What was on the line for your industry? The, the names was one thing, but it was a whole lot more than that for dairy, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, market access was another one. We've always been saying we want like for like. Uh, you know, when, we're pretty open to say, as we've said multiple times, you know, 70,000 tonnes of EU products coming in here already. Uh, we sent them 400 last year, uh, and they still wanted to cry poverty over that one so and and not allow us better access into the EU so but um, so and when you consider you know cheese they bring in about 28,000 tons of cheese and and uh, after the first 11,000 just over 11,000 tons then they pay a tariff on it which is fairly significant um, but they're still quite happy to do it so so this would have actually opened the gates to them of about to send even more we as I, I as I would say we would be flooded with EU product so then comes this weekend it was all coming to a head in Osaka the NFF and other groups like yours were out last week imploring the trade minister not to sign this deal when did you know you were going to Japan and what have the events been like for the last few days so we knew already a couple of weeks ago we'd already been invited to, to come across by the government that we should should be here as well as a few of the other sectors. So uh, so we've made the plans. We were expecting a couple, or we were told there could be a couple more offers from the EU. Uh, we met with a minister late yesterday who was looking for our final position uh, as a probably more around the red meat sector, a sugar sector than than dairy. Um, he went in there last night and had that discussion and it looked like it was not going to get any more than really what was on the table. And, and as you know, the, the minister said in July, uh, if I don't get a better deal, I'll walk away. And, you know, and to his credit and to the team's credit, they've done exactly that. So have you spoken to the minister since? Did you offer a congratulations or something? Does that, is that something that happens? <laughs> yeah, well, we did. We've, we've just been meeting with him this morning, but he just came out of that meeting. So, uh, and, uh, and look, all. All the sectors, uh, ag sectors are saying, you know, we, we uh, congratulate them on what they've done and, and holding the line. Um, obviously, the others want them to continue negotiations. Uh, I'm not sure whether we're quite at that stage as dairy. We're, we're sort of quite happy to say, you know, this is actually a benefit to our industry if if uh, if this doesn't get much further. But obviously, you know, there are other ag sectors who there is some value in, in trying to get a, a decent deal. You know, it's a, we're talking free trading, but we're also talking fair trade, and, and that's the part that that hasn't come out of this uh, this trade agreement for agriculture. Well, and that's that was the next question, right, because it's it celebrated by agriculture of not signing the deal. I tried to put this to David Jahinke earlier. Is it a missed opportunity in some regards? Because if you could get a good deal to this market, it could be quite lucrative. I think, I think that's the word, if. 
if it was the problem, if we could get one, yes, it was going to be quite lucrative for, it could be quite lucrative for, for other sectors, other ag sectors. So, um, but that's just not forthcoming. And, and so you look, well, that's, that's why, you know, the other ag sectors are saying, well, don't, we're not saying throw this away. We want to see negotiations continue. It's, it's obviously going to slow right off now. And uh, EU going into election middle of next year, you know, obviously we have an Australian election, federal election towards the end of the year, maybe early 2024. So, so it's years, really. Sort of really. It's years out. before this will yeah, get to this point I, again. That, that's what I'm expecting. That's what even what the minister is actually saying as well, as we could be years away from, from getting something done. So, um, so, so for those, yes, it's disappointing, but look, there's other trade opportunities there. I mean, for us, it's, you know, the focus is certainly on Asia, but UK free trade deal now sitting there, which uh, has benefit to some of these sectors as well. So, and the other issue with them was was around conditionality. I mean, I I reckon GIS to us was conditionality. So, but there was conditionalities for those other sectors in and how they could sell, you know, even trade at theirs. As we've been reminded more than once, you know, Canada's got a pretty good deal when they haven't even sent a ton of product into the EU yet. So. So what's, and that's what we what's, were very wary here. What's the rest of your trip like? You're in Japan at the moment. When when do you come home and are there more meetings to come? Uh, no, it sounds like this is it. They're, they've been quite open to say, you know, that was what last night's was, is have we got any progression on this? Um, there's no point us sitting down for another days negotiating and and still, you know, nothing's going to come forward. You put nothing better on the table. What's the point of sitting here for two days and waiting? Um, the only thing is, is that, we're not coming, leaving here till late Tuesday. So uh, the minister's leaving before that, but uh, we've sort of had those tickets booked accordingly, thinking that this could be sort of a whole day affair today, which it's not going to be. No, I think you can do some sightseeing in Japan. Australia's dairy farmer, President Rick Gladigo, speaking there with Warwick Long from Japan and the dairy industry and throwing its support behind the federal government walking away from the free trade negotiations. Jeremy on the text line says we should scrap trade with EU altogether unless we come up with a like-for-like trade agreement. 0438922936, that text line number. Coming up in a moment, plenty of employees in the Nutrien organisation right across Tasmania. We will hear from the retail head of Global for Nutrien in just a moment. Kylie Baxter. For Lucy Braden. SES Cruise. Across the state have also had a very busy 24 hours. Leon Smith. You know, commentary um, by people that we've attended um, to a cruise on the ground is that, oh, gee, this hasn't happened before. You know, we've had significant gusting. We had a number of trees down. The feedback's been exceptional from people in need. No, hopefully a well-deserved rest now, Kylie, and um, be available for the next event. Drive with Kylie Baxter. For Lucy Braden. Keeping you entertained and informed on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Nutrien is one of the biggest agribusiness names in Tasmania and the Canadian-owned company has around 4,000 employees across Australia. American Jeff Tarzi oversees the retail operations of Nutrien globally. He visited Australia to speak at the National Farmers Federation Conference in Canberra. Our reporter Kath Sullivan sat down with Jeff to talk about the health of the farm sector, both here in Australia and around the world. I remember the first time I came here and uh, came here actually prospecting to see if we wanted, not if we wanted, but if, if we fit with Australian agriculture, with our company and 
if we did, how would we enter? And I, I can remember going in the, in the branches of the landmark business that we eventually bought, and I was amazed that they were selling dog biscuits and tea at that time. <laughs> and uh, it was really eye-opening for me. And uh, Are you still selling tea bags? I think that we probably do have some. Maybe they tell me we don't, but I, I got a feeling if I really searched it out, we do have some uh, branches that are still selling tea. And I know we sell dog biscuits because I saw them in uh, some of our facilities earlier this week. Given that um, you're operating in so many different markets, um, can what's the sense that you get globally of how agriculture is travelling at the moment? Well, I think it's, a, um, it's an interesting time in agriculture you know every day we wake up and we have for the really the last three years where food security has been a a a cornerstone to a lot of the problems we're trying to solve for and uh we take for granted in a lot of these places here in australia and north america well because we have such availability of food that uh that that's not an issue while that on a global basis that's a real issue and so the problem that we're trying to solve for has a lot of purpose behind it. Also, we've been faced with supply chain issues, and I've talked about it just about with everyone that, that I've met today at the conference. Everybody's interested in, in that side of it. And so how do we solve for some of those issues? And a lot of these things were a series of events that occurred that uh, I call them black swan events. Uh, people might argue with me. I don't think I'm wrong on that, though. And uh, and, and such, but if I look around agriculture today, it's it's a very competitive market. Uh, it's about efficiency, and you gather that efficiency by being open to innovation and technology. And uh, that's going to be that's going to be a real key going forward in the future. You, you talk about the supply chain there, and it seems that with the pandemic, the wheels, the cogs, really clogged up a lot. How long is it going to take to get things back to the way they were? And will we do just in time again? I tell you, just in time is probably going to be a bit of a delay. It's going to take a little bit of time for everybody to kind of forget about what occurred over these last three years before I think just in time becomes a centerpiece again from that standpoint. I do feel like that the supply chain has eased up quite a bit, uh, especially over the last eight to 10 months. Uh, you know, if I'm in the Brazilian markets today, I might even I might even say that we have an oversupply situation there. Uh, the North American market has loosened up uh, quite a bit as well, and yet I'm careful how I say that in Australia because we just went through an event here where we had issues on shortages of urea. So it just it just serves to remind you every day that there's another challenge generally right around the corner. And so how do we keep ourselves flexible enough and how do we position ourselves where, again, we can service our growers with the inputs they need? I was interested in something you said off tape before about the Brazilian market. And uh, you you had the sense that it was a very innovative farming sector there. That was because a lot of farmers haven't been in the industry long. Have I summed that up correctly? Yeah, it's not. In other words, you know, the gentleman we met with uh, earlier this week that we were on farm with, you know, he told me his family had been farming there, I think, since 1862. Okay, so that's a lot of generational uh, farming done on that on that land. If you go into Brazil, you, you do find, like, it, even in the States today, it would be very difficult for a young man 21 years of age or a woman 
21 years of age to wake up and say, I want to start farming tomorrow. That's a bit of a difference in Brazil. I, I talk to a lot of people that haven't been in agriculture for that many years. And uh, so maybe a little bit ease of entry into that. But what I find is those people that haven't been there as long sometimes are even a bit more open to new innovation and technology that's, that's coming. And so that's what I always challenge people on is don't ever shut your brain down on the innovation and technology side of it because we truly do compete in a global marketplace and we've got to gain efficiencies. We know that. And uh, if you're not gaining efficiencies today, you're going backwards. Jeff Tazi, President of Global Retail with Nutrien, speaking there with Kath Sullivan in Canberra after attending the National Farmers Federation Conference where he was one of the speakers. Still to come on the Country Hour, we talk about trunk disease in grapevines and also we'll take you to a medicinal cannabis facility and a check on the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Michael Delafontana. Thank you, Tony. Police say one person's been seriously injured in a shark attack on the South Australia's Air Peninsula. Police received a report of a shark attack at Westall Way Loop near Streaky Bay about 20 past 10 this morning. Streaky Bay is a coastal town on the western side of Air Peninsula, about 300 kilometres northwest of Port Lincoln. The US has described Russian claims that an anti-Israel riot at an airport yesterday was organised by Ukraine and the West as absurd. Hundreds stormed the airport in Dagestan ahead of the the arrival of a flight from Israel, with many waving Palestinian flags and chanting anti-Semitic slogans. Russia's President Vladimir Putin says the incident was part part of an attempt to spread chaos in Russia. Police have charged a 14-year-old with armed robbery after an incident in Hobart on Sunday night. At a quarter past eight, the teenager allegedly entered a shop on Liverpool Street wearing a black ski mask, threatening, threatening the shop attendant with a knife while demanding cigarettes. The youth received bail and will front the youth justice court at a later date. And one of the most decorated players in the AFLW, Port Adelaide captain Aaron Phillips, has announced a retirement from professional football. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather and Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. Uh, what's it like out there? Much rainfall about at all? There's, there's been a little. Uh, I'll, I'll just run through yesterday's first. Uh, Darwin Dam in the west had 31 millimetres. Henty Canal 27 and Lake Margaret 24. And the rainfall since 9am this morning. Uh, Cradle Valley and Pine Forest Moor have had 10 millimetres. And Mount Reed has had eight. Other, other parts about the west and the south have had, had some light falls about. But the showers should ease off now as we're starting to get a high pressure ridge forming over us from a high over the bite. And what are we expecting over the next wee while? Yeah, so the high over the bite, putting a, extending a ridge over us, will move over the state in the next couple of days. So fairly settled weather um, for, into Friday. We'll just have a few showers, a few very light showers about the west. On Friday, a weak cold front wraps around and um, comes up over the state, but uh, it'll only bring lot, very light showers about... Um, uh, mainly about the north of the state later on in the, in the evening. And then after that, we get another high-pressure system ridging over the top of us. But this one will ridge mainly into the south of the state and it will it'll bring showers into the north. So over the weekend, we're expecting a few lightish showers about the north uh, into Monday as well. So, um, yeah, apart from, apart from that, there's very little weather going on. And not too much, uh, not too many mills in, uh, in that, what we're expecting? 
No, yeah, the, 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 they'll only be light showers, uh, so typically, you know, uh, five millimetres, that sort of thing, up to um, for each day about the north. Uh, but, yeah, not, not much in it, most likely not much at all. So, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to see, of course, but we'll see. And what, what sort of temperatures? It's going to warm up, uh, so tomorrow will be three or four degrees warmer than than uh, what we're having today. It's a bit cool around the state today with temperatures um, around the mid, just above the mid-teens for most places. But, but tomorrow, look, it's like Launceston, 23 degrees uh, from 17 today, um, so pretty warm about the state. And similar temperatures uh, statewide tomorrow with Hobart also on 21. And we still have some mornings, Michael. We do. There's still a little windy out there, so we've still got a strong wind warning for this broad southwesterly flow. Strong wind warnings for all coastal waters and all, um, all southeast inshore waters, apart from the Derwent. Uh, we have the central plateau lakes as well. And uh, tomorrow there's a strong wind warning for the, for the lower east and the southeast coastal waters. We've, um, the ship grace is weather alert has been has been has been cancelled this morning. Okay, but uh, still uh, there'll be still some cool conditions out there. Coastal waters and swell. What's happening there? Yeah, we've got uh, in terms in terms of wind today. We've got west to southwesterly at twenty to thirty knots. There'll be winds will be decreasing to fifteen to twenty five about western waters in the afternoon, and then throughout to that fifteen to twenty five in the evening. Tomorrow we're looking at west to southwesterlies at fifteen to twenty five knots. They'll be reaching up to thirty knots at times about the southeast and lowerest. We also expect a few afternoon showers. Uh, sorry, afternoon sea breezes about the east tomorrow. <laughs> The swells about today in the western south is a westerly at four to six metres and tomorrow a westerly three to five metres. In the north there's a westerly at one to two metres today, one to one and a half tomorrow. And in the east we've got a northeasterly swell at one to two metres today, easing to about two one uh, about just under a metre tomorrow. And at the same time there's a south to southwesterly swell today, one to two metres and up to two to four metres offshore in the south, and tomorrow one to one and a half metres and reaching up to three metres offshore in the south. The Wave Rider Boys, Cape Sorrel, 5.2 metres, and Mariah Island is at 1.8 metres, and they both have been just very recently, the whole, whole um, Wave Rider Boys been replaced on both of those just in the last week or so, so hopefully there'll be no more um, problems with them. New boys. Yeah, new boys, that's right. <laughs> uh, good on you, Michael. Thanks for that. Thanks, Tony. Good on you, yeah. Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you on today's edition of The Country Hour. Coming up in just a moment, we shall take you out to uh, a medicinal cannabis facility, one of the biggest glasshouses uh, around, apparently, but we'll find out more in just a moment uh, with our reporter, Liz Gwynn. And also coming up, uh, we'll talk about New Zealand politics too because the live sheep trade could resume in New Zealand with a new government and also trunk disease for grapevines, all those stories for you in just a moment. ABC Listen. What would it take to survive the unsurvivable? Water was pouring into my cabin and rising very, very fast. In 1973, a ship disappeared off the coast of Tasmania, launching one of the greatest survival stories Australia has ever seen. We just survived hell. And all Malcolm had the nose who won the Caulfield Cup. <laughs> From the Dead, Season 2 of The Expanse podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
One of the great aspects of working in rural in Tasmania is going out and visiting farms, visiting glasshouses, visiting greenhouses. And uh, somebody who's been out visiting one of the biggest glasshouses, greenhouses around is Liz Gwynn, who joins the country out right now. G'day, Liz. Hi, Tony. How are you going? Good. You can't tell me where you are because uh, we're talking about a medicinal cannabis facility, but you can describe uh, what you've seen this morning. How did the day go? Yeah, definitely. It was really interesting insight into medicinal cannabis production and and the facility that, as you quite rightly said in your intro, is the fifth largest in Australia and is Tasmania's largest facility. So the operation currently produces about 2,000 kilograms of dried cannabis flower, and that's grown indoors but also outdoors as well. The medicinal cannabis grown outdoors is a bit more rustic and is slightly different to the greenhouse cannabis. But it also produces 500 kilograms of cannabis extract a year. So it's a pretty big operation. That operation is about to triple in size this month. And that's due to a new greenhouse, which is opening up. So it's actually the first time media were allowed to tour the facility. We were able to photograph. Obviously, we couldn't sort of give any idea of of where it exactly is. But we're able to photograph the inside and get a bit of a sense of what's involved in the whole production. So from the cutting stage to the planting to the processing and then to the packaging um, and, and providing that flower to the patient or that oil as well extracted from the flower. So, yeah, really interesting insight, Tony, into how it all works. I've learnt a lot today. Yeah, now it is radio, so you've got to uh, provide us with an idea of just how big this glass house is. Uh, foot, football field comparison? I would say so, yeah. It's a massive production, massive facility, and you've got quite a few different buildings as well that are just as big. And what's really interesting is you've got these plants and they're on sort of what you would describe as a tray and they're sort of drip-fed. So each plant has two sort of drips that that go in. You've got this mister, which is, um, you know, up above these plants and, and that mist is sort of slowly coming down. It's quite warm in there compared to sort of the outdoor elements that the outdoor plants are experiencing the greenhouse plants it's it's actually quite warm in that um, particular facility but yeah it's just massive and you've got these this rotation of these trays that sort of come around so every fortnight I was told that they actually harvest so it's it's a moving you know very much a moving feast and and they've got about 100 workers full-time at this facility Um, so that that has risen from 40 just two years ago but because they're now going to triple production, they're going to need more workers. So it's actually an incredible employment opportunity for this particular regional area. Now, where is the finished product ending up, Liz? Is a lot of it staying in the state or is it heading interstate or overseas? It's heading mainly in Tasmania and also Australia. So it's actually quite a sought after product. And the reason is, is because it's actually quite free of, in in fact, it is free of of chemicals and and pesticides as well. So none of that is used. It's really interesting. Um, There's a huge advantage of this being in Tasmania. So you've got the outdoor cannabis or medicinal cannabis that is grown. It's um, dry uh, climate and it doesn't get too hot hot. So what they were saying is they want to avoid any stresses and disease in the plant. So being dry and temperate is a massive advantage. So they don't have, well, they have 
use less chemicals. They don't use any pesticides at all, unlike overseas, unlike the product overseas. Instead, they actually rely on predatory insects to actually keep some of those pests away. So it's definitely all natural. And that's going to people who it's obviously got to be approved by your doctor, but it's um, patients that that need this, um, that, um, you know, there's there's a, a whole different um, different patients that are, are using this. Um, at the moment, uh, there's more of a, I, I guess, a, a demand for the homegrown product because unlike overseas, we have quite a lot of scrutiny on the medicinal cannabis products because it's got to go through, you know, the, the TGA and there's a lot of scrutiny on it to make sure that it is to that standard um, so that patients can take it and, and so it can be safe. So they're really hoping that they can um, produce a really affordable product because it's not on the PBS, unlike Endone that is on the PBS, this particular one isn't. But um, they're saying that it can give some patients less side effects. Um, it is safe to use is what they're saying. Obviously, you have to still go through your doctor and it, it's got to be above board. You can't take it illegally. But they were saying that, yeah, definitely, unlike overseas, people are sort of going to the Australian and Tasmanian grower and just for those benefits of, of being a bit um, healthier, free of chemicals and pesticides, which is always a, a great thing. And it's quite a unique industry because there's only two of them in Tasmania and this one's uh, obviously going okay. I can remember going through that facility when the uh, the first glass house was constructed. It was pretty big but nowhere near the yeah. size of this one and the people I went with were amazed. What What sort of reactions did you get today? Yeah, there was a lot of mixed reactions. We actually had some government representatives there, which was really interesting, Tony. So they were obviously um, taking in um, the surrounds and, and sort of the information that they're getting because there's a lot of regulations in Tasmania and other states in Australia when it does come to medicinal cannabis. We were talking um, to, you know, the head of operations who said there is still a lot of stigma around medicinal cannabis, despite there being some clear benefits for, for certain patients obviously not all patients, but certain patients. Um, but there was also the um, Tasmanian Business Council as well. They were there. They were saying that this, this is a wonderful thing for Tasmania, not only for the employment um, opportunities that is here and, as I said, um, in that regional sort of area, but also they were saying just in terms of the sheer production and, and having something like this that is, you know, we've got something we're sort of competing almost with, you know, some overseas companies because the product is so different um, in order what they're able to offer compared to, say, Canada, where they've got a, a lot of oversupply, but as I said, doesn't go through the same scrutiny as, as what the product here does. Okay, Liz, we look forward to watching your TV news story on the 7 o'clock bulletin tonight on ABC TV. And uh, Fiona Breen is doing an online digital as well uh, with all the photos. So we'll uh, look forward to yeah. seeing that. Thanks for your time, Liz. Appreciate it. Anytime, Tony. Thank you. Liz Gwynn there, our reporter who's at the Medicinal Cannabis Facility. And as I say, you can see that story on the ABC TV news tonight. See the size, the sheer size of that particular glass house. 
Well, the shipping company Wellard is watching New Zealand politics closely at the moment with expectations the new government there will remove the current ban on live animal exports. The National Party is set to lead New Zealand following its election victory, but it didn't get enough votes to lead outright and will need to form a coalition, the details of which are expected to be finalised within the next week. Wellard's Executive Chairman John Klepek says he's expecting New Zealand's live export trade, especially for dairy breeders, will be resurrected next year. Uh, we're watching the New Zealand politics closely and um, uh, actually quite uh, happy with the result that occurred uh, a couple of weeks back with the change of government. Jacinta Ardern uh, took it upon herself to um, ban the trade, uh, which happened in April of this year. Um, and following that, that did suck forward a bit a bit of uh, uh, volume in, into the Chinese uh, dairy breeder market. And um, since then, we've seen a, a complete halt in that trade. Um, That was a significant part of um, our business in the last um, two years when you've had the drop-off in the um, the volumes of the other market. The the dairy uh, breeder trade to China for actually the last three years has been very solid. Uh, The New Zealand dairy uh, herd is uh, in in high demand uh, and it's a pretty efficient operation over there. So it's a positive when it does come back. So just going back to a new look government there in New Zealand, what are your expectations in terms of the live export trade potentially having a comeback? Well, we believe they, um, uh, look, it's the National Party, which won most seats, uh, went to the election with, with the pledge to resume live exports under what they call a gold standards um, regime. And the two parties, my understanding of the two parties that they're negotiating with currently to form the government, uh, being ACT New Zealand and New Zealand First, um, they've got similar policies to the National Party, which is very very strongly uh, reopen the trade, however, with this gold standard um, uh, in, in coming over the top. Um, so, you know, we're, we're very confident that uh, it will occur. It wasn't part of our 100-day plan um, uh, um, that the Nationals uh, put forward. So we're, we're not certain about the timing of the, of the implementation, but um, we believe long-term there is a need there for it um, and it will return. So it's hard to say this month, this quarter, whatever, uh, I think it's 2024, not 2025. Um, and for us, the sooner the better. It, it, it's a it's a large volume trade. It's a good trade. Our ships do it very, very well. Um, our crew on board uh, look after the cattle um, breeders especially well. Our track record is is exemplary in that area. In terms of the trade potentially coming back, do you think it would be just for breeders, or is the National Party mm. potentially going to reinstate? exports for slaughter as well? I don't think they have the capacity for the slaughter. They're, they're, they're set up or there. Or the feeder you know, trade as well, perhaps. Um, look, if they were going to do anything else, it would be sheep. Um, you know, the country has a, has a volume of sheep. They were in the sheep trade previously, and Willard has been involved in that trade. So if they were to open it up beyond breeders, I think sheep uh, would be in the frame. In terms of feeders and, and slaughter cattle, uh, of any sort of volume, uh, I don't think they they have the uh, inherent capacity to do it. They're they're set up for uh, you know dairy breeders and and or sheep. And you mentioned the National Party wanting to enforce a gold standard when it comes to exports. Do you assume it would be something similar to SCAS that we see in Australia? No, look, it, look, it may have SCAS. Uh, I think. Um, it's more, you know, the um, discussions we had when they were contemplating um, this, the banning of the trade. And all this came, you remember, um, go back in time, all this came about because of the, uh, the 
the tragedy of the Gulf uh, Livestock One. Um, so then, uh, because that was a New Zealand shipment of, of dairy breeders, um, their um, um, politicians and um, uh, bureaucrats um, had to solve the situation that occurred, and obviously no one wants that to repeat. So we believe it, uh, the gold standard is, is, is predominantly about the shipping and the animal, wel animal welfare and shipping safety, those two first and foremost. SCAS may come into play. Um, however, SCAS for breeding cattle is a whole whole different um, scenario than, than it is for feeding feeder cattle and slaughter cattle. SCAS is, is predominantly around um, the end of life of, of, of the, the livestock rather than yeah, work with a breeder where you're taking the breeder on for, you know, 10, 12 years um, and it's in your interest um, that that uh, animal is as well kept and well fed and well watered to produce the milk that you want. So I, I don't really see SCAS being a, a big factor um, at play. It's more about the age of the ships, the quality of the ships, where animal welfare is first and foremost and ship safety uh, is equal. Well, Lads Executive Chairman John Klepek speaking there to Matt Bran. Well, vineyards around the country can be devastated by vine trunk disease. It's a slow-growing fungus that can rot the trunk of a vine from the inside out. Associate Professor Cara Barry from the TIA is collaborating with the South Australian Research and Development Institute on a national project designed to find out what makes vines more susceptible. It can eventually uh, kill the vine, so it can... Um, Potentially, sort of almost girdle it, internally girdle the, the plant so that there's no longer any water and nutrients being exchanged up through the trunk. Um, and, but, but usually there's a, a, an option to, to sort of stop much earlier than that because the symptoms are quite slow developing. So growers can have the opportunity to do some remediation um, in terms of removing infected parts of the vine and trying to encourage newer shoots to come up and take over. Our focus at the moment is very much looking at the wine industry and looking at vineyards and wine crops. What are the earliest signs of trunk disease for that wine growers should be looking out for? So there's a couple of different pathogens that cause trunk disease. So there's one pathogen called Utipa, and that one will actually cause symptoms where the leaves will start to kind of curl up. And they it's a bit confusing because it can look a bit like a nutrient deficiency, could look like herbicide um, spray damage. So that's a little bit a bit tricky. But um, basically, yeah, you get, you get reduced um, leaf development, you get smaller... Um, grape bunches as well whereas there's another pathogen called um, diplodia and there's a series in this group called the botrosphaeria grapevine trunk disease pathogens and they don't really cause any of those outward symptoms so you only start to sort of um, see it when you start to cut the vine and you see the internal defects so that one's a bit trickier to, to pick up. So when those signs are identified what are the first things that growers and should be doing? So one thing to do is to prevent more of the infection coming in. So um, because once there is infection in a vineyard, that means the pathogen is active and eventually they will start to produce more inoculum. So the pathogens will start to produce spores and those spores will go and infect new pruning wounds. So one, one important step is to protect pruning wounds with some kind of fungicide or, or uh, a sealant on those pruning wounds. And there's a specific window of time where where that should be done to optimise the protection. Okay. And once disease 
has set in. Obviously, there's management that can go ahead and go forward. But are you stuck with it? Um, I think you're kind of stuck with it. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, and it, and because it is so slow developing, it might not really impact the crop for for many years. So it probably you know is something that catches up with people later. So ideally, you prevent it from the first instance. But um, I guess growers may be unaware that it has come in, and they are kind of stuck with it until it gets to such a severe point where they have to decide whether to remove vines um, or whether to do that remediation of actually cutting back a large part of the vine and then trying to train um, a new shoot to take over. You've teamed up with researchers from South Australia where you're also from other states as well too, I think, uh, where you're teamed up and looking at the impact of trunk disease specifically in the wine industry. Um, So we've teamed up to help deliver on a research question around the timing of um, pruning wound susceptibility. So this is a a sort of a range of studies that have been done in South Australia already and some other states and certainly New Zealand. And the question really is, um, how does the timing of pruning affect how susceptible the pruning wounds are? And that If we know a bit more about that in a Tasmanian context, we can give more targeted advice around how long um, vineyard managers have got before they've got to get in there and put on a fungicide spray and so on. So, yeah, the research is aiming to, I guess, give some Tasmanian-specific evidence of whether the general findings from other states apply or whether there's something a little bit different here. What will that research look like here in Tasmania? So we have a research trial at one field site in the Coal River Valley and that's been, uh, it'll be a three-year trial. So what we've been doing for the last five months is every week we've been applying the fungal inoculum to pruning wounds and those pruning wounds were made either early in the season, mid or late in the season and then we apply the inoculum at a series of weeks from the timing of that, that pruning cut. So uh, at the moment, those uh, wounds are becoming infected, a very, very small amount of infection. It's not enough to be an issue to the the vineyard manager because towards the end of or mid next year, we'll actually cut those short uh, pruning or or, um, cane lengths off and we will send them off for processing. So that infection won't get into the vine that that we've introduced through our experiment, but we'll, we'll then get to see... Um, you know, how much did the disease infect and develop uh, based on all those different treatments that we've done and we'll, we'll come out with some, some uh, I guess, some results and then we'll do the same thing the next two years in a row. Associate we find Pro- the same thing or not. Associate Professor Cara Barry from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture talking uh, vine trunk disease. That is our country hour for today. Uh, we will catch you after midday tomorrow.